This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Hague. Watching somebody making a record nowadays is like watching your accountant doing your taxes. It's the only list of zebra crossing in the UK. Pink Floyd used to go in there in the middle of the night and play five-a-side football. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? The zebra crossing on the cover of Abbey Road must be the most famous street marking in the world. And the reason that a certain Fab Four are crossing the road, single file, is that they were too lazy to go further afield for an album sleeve photograph than the road right outside their studio. The journalist and broadcaster, not to mention alumnus of the old grey whistle test, David Hepworth, has written the story of Abbey Road. David, thank you very much for joining us on the Books Podcast. Nice to be here. Right, so for some of us, Abbey Road, studio number two, is sacred ground. Uh, But there might be somebody up there who doesn't know why. So can we just start by name-checking a couple of the uh, recording artists who've been... You can just hit the highlights if you well, like. Well, I mean, it was opened in 1931 with Sir Edward Elgar playing his latest hot tune, uh, Land of Hope and Glory. And, uh, you know, all the all the major classical uh, maestros recorded there during the 30s and then popular music stars Noel Coward, Gracie Fields, George Formby, Al Bowley, all the dance bands and so forth. You see, all those names, Al Bowley... I don't know. Who was Al Bowley? Let's let's do a bit of the digging here. Al Bowley is an absolutely fascinating figure and uh, a pivotal figure in the in the history of British pop music because he was arguably arguably the first British pop star. Um, and he comes along in the 30s, uh, he, although he's not strictly British, he's he's kind of comes from absolutely all over the place. Um, but he made his way to to England to make his name as a singer with uh, with dance bands. And he arrives with the advent of the electrical microphone. And the advent of the electrical microphone is absolutely key to, to this. They because, were using mechanical ones. Because prior to that, you know, you, you was, they were singing into a huge great horn, effectively. So if you look at the photographs of the early days of recording, the really early days, I'm talking about pre-First World War and so forth, the thing that people remember most about those uh, sessions is the smell of pers- perspiration. For two reasons. <laughs> One reason was the musicians had to be really close together in order to be able to project into this That's into this an unlovely picture you're painting there. And the other thing was there was huge amount of tension because they were recording direct to disc. And if anything went wrong, you know, if you hit a bum note, everything had to stop. The record, the, the disc, very expensive disc, had to be thrown away, and then you had to start all over again. So the tension of recording sessions in the early days is something that we've, we can't imagine nowadays. You know, the, the great pian- pianist uh, Schnabel um, recorded the, uh, the Beethoven piano sonatas. He was given the job to record the whole lot in the 30s. And immense pressure because they had a disc that could only accommodate about three minutes or something. So they had to pre-edit everything in their heads, what's worth playing, what's worth recording. And then if you made a mistake, you'd have to, go all over again. And he got so bad with him that at one stage he went out into Abbey Road and wept in the street, which you can, you can well imagine, that kind of pressure. And it's unknown to subsequent musicians, uh, generations of musicians. 
Your book, Abbey Road, then, actually, it's about the recording studio, but it's a sort of synecdoche for the whole EMI recording business. And indeed, because you, you, you give us that kind of background, it's for the whole process of, of recorded music. I think the thing that, that made me want to write it, I mean, they asked me, you know, Abbey Road and my publisher, uh, you know, they asked me if I would do, uh, was I interested in this? So I said, yes, I'm, I'm very interested in this because I'm interested in studios. And I'm also interested in the difference between a record and a song. And I think that's a distinction that tends to get blurred in the public mind. You say in, in the book there's a point at which uh, the, the music business became the record business. Yes. Well, and also with the advent of going back to the electrical microphone, that's when the record starts to be invented. Because you listen to the records that Al Bowley made at Abbey Road, you know, uh, the one that everybody will be familiar with because they've seen The Shining, the Stanley Kubrick film, is is, is Moonlight, The Stars and You, um, which he uses in the to summon up the the idea of the sinister goings on in this hotel back in the back in the day. The thing about a record like that is it's got something that earlier records had not got, which was an atmosphere. It cast a spell. It had a feeling about it. You know. Uh, which you can only get via the microphone, via that sense of that new sense of intimacy, that new sense of somebody singing into your ear. And so the, in the early days of that material, the pop music was referred to as personality music, which I think is quite telling, actually. That's it's fallen by the wayside since, but it tells you a lot because the point about a record like that is you wanted to hear that person doing that song in that way. Not, not somebody just like it. No, that one. You grew really attached to the way it was done. So, you know, great records well, of course that, that are kind of addictive. For, you know. for a while, didn't it? In, in, the, in the sense that um, pop songs might well be uh, done by somebody. I mean, somebody else recorded That'll Be The Day for the British market um, and, and rather than just bringing over the... The, the original from America. And, you you know, Twist and Shout's the perfect example, isn't it? That uh, um, I'm going to misremember who went up against the Beatles, but it was, was it the Tremolos? Oh, Brian Poole and the it Tremolos the probably tremolos. went up against them, yes. And, you know, uh, yeah, the, Twist and Shout is, is an interesting case because, you know, this is 1963 or whatever, so the Beatles have arrived there in 62 and they've made their first few hits and they get a chance to make an album. And uh, and so uh, they are, they're allowed one day to make it an LP. Okay, that's all it needed. And uh, but they hadn't got quite enough songs at the end of the day, so they were scratching around for what to do. And somebody suggested, "Why don't you do that song that sounds a bit like La Bamba?" And they said, "What's that?" He said, "Oh, it's Twist and Shout." Okay, they go to the back of the studio. It's ten o'clock at night. John Lennon had a cold. They did two takes. And if you listen to that record. And you compare it to, A, to the originals the done Isley by the Brothers, Isley yeah. Brothers. and I think there was another version I can't remember. Mm. Uh, or you compare it to the records made in Abbey Road before that, like Cliff Richard's records or whatever. The electricity about that record is just absolutely astonishing. Well, it's because they left it all out on the field, isn't it? You can hear four tired Beatles thrashing their way through with sheer professionalism. And they've they've just given everything. It, it's it it's they, they come together. You know they, the the point about the Beatles 
I always think is people spend far too much time talking about the Beatles as great songwriters. It's not the point. The point about the Beatles was the Beatles. It was their personalities. And it was their ability to project their personality in a song. And then it was EMI and Abbey Road's good fortune to find a way to capture that. And so Norman Smith, who was their original engineer on the first half of the Beatles' career, said he wanted it to sound like seeing them live, that it sort of had the excitement of seeing them live. And so without doing it with a studio audience, which would have been the obvious way, he managed to to you know, create that, you know, by... And they, they, they were starting to notice that American pop records sounded a lot more exciting than British pop records. I'm talking about Roy Orbison's records or Tamla Motown or Phil Spector or whatever. And they discovered a lot of this was the Americans used compressors, which had been introduced in the radio business in order to make your advert sound louder than the guy next door. Uh, and so this was a way of kind of crunching the sound down. It made it more punchy. It was really punchy, and it was perfectly punchy for coming through an AM radio, which don't forget is how most people heard it, or on a jukebox, or, or on a mono record player. You know, so at every stage in the evolution of recorded sound, people are making records for the technology of the time, with the technology of the time. And that changes all the time, you know, so... I've still got the feeling if you go and listen to the Beatles on CD, it never sounds as good as listening to the Beatles on vinyl because it was made for vinyl. It was, they thought of it for vinyl. They didn't even hang about to mix it in stereo. The Beatles weren't interested at all, even up to Sgt. Pepper. Mono was what they did. You know, so that, that happens at every stage all through the, the development of recorded sound. Well, you've mentioned what was going on in, in these uh, American studios. And we can all think of, I mean, Muscle Shoals and uh, Electric Ladyland and Sun and Motown and all of those other studios. Why Abbey Road then? What made Abbey Road special? Well, it, it was a curious place. It was started in 1931 because the new, the new company, EMI, which, don't forget, stood for Electrical and Musical mm -hmm. Industries. Very important because the it, the hardware was as important as the, the software, if you like, you know. And uh, and they wanted a place that, that could be a kind of temple to recording, where they could because uh, recording had been seen as a quite disreputable business before that, and so they wanted somewhere where a classical performers particularly felt at home. So they felt like a concert hall. They found this house at three, three number three Abbey Road. And they, uh, they quite shrewd though that that location wasn't. Well, it, well, it, it been... was partly because it was it was near enough the West End that the musicians could come and could go and be in the pit orchestra or wherever they were in the evening. And they, you know, there'd be a three-hour session, you know, as stipulated by the musicians' union. But they picked number three because they had a huge garden at the back. The garden was big enough on which to build an enormous studio. You anticipate my next question. I've been to Abbey Road. I've never been in it because it's a working studio and I, I am a humble, humble supplicant. When you look at it, though, it's it's a big house, uh, but it, it, you, you look at it, you can't imagine that it's got all those studios. No, it's a TARDIS. It's, it's a, a TARDIS, TARDIS, yeah. TARDIS inside, particularly because of the big studio at the back, which is, you know... Studio number one. Studio number big one. Big enough for a symphony orchestra. Which was absolutely 100 pieces or whatever, so opened by Elgar in 1931 among the groupies hanging about with George Bernard Shaw, you know, so it's very definitely the kind of Edwardian Victorian stripe. 
and um, uh, and that wasn't used by the Beatles that much. They used it occasionally on things like too all big for them. All, all you need is love. They used it and they used it a day in the life. Things with an, a huge orchestra, uh, but that was mainly used for classical. Uh, and then there were two other CDs. Number three, which was solo artists, you know, small. That's all. Roy it, Harper. <laughs> yeah, well, no, Roy Harper very often in number two. Oh, really? So number two was the one in between, which was dance bands, which was regarded as the pop studio, you know, during the 30s. But that's the place where the Beatles worked. Um, and that's the place where Pink Floyd did Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here. Uh, and that's the place that is sort of regarded as holy ground now, you know, that uh, that they, they've managed to kind of, you know, any, any of the ill-advised efforts that they might have made to modernise it in the past have been reversed you know, because the heritage of the place is so important. And uh, I always think the amazing thing about it is when you go in, it's got a parquet floor, which makes people of a certain age think about every school hall that they ever went into. Well, Studio Two has Studio a parquet floor. Studio has a parquet floor. Is, is that acoustically desirable? Apparently so. Apparently it is when balanced against the surfaces of the of the of the walls and the and the ceiling. And you know, we, we can listen to "She Loves You" and who who are we to argue that is acoustically valuable? But. Uh, you know, I, I, I was in there, you know, towards the end of the book and I was talking to Noel Gallagher who happened to be in there putting strings on his new record, most of which he'd made like everybody makes a new record nowadays in his studio at home, effectively, because most records are made in the box, as they say nowadays, Pro Tools or whatever. So watching somebody making a record nowadays is like watching your accountant doing your taxes. You know, it's just not very exciting at all. And, and a huge number of people do that. You know, I can well see the attraction. But at the same time, you know, its existence, its continued existence, is a reminder of the value of being in a place. You know, because that's the thing that Noel Gallagher said to me. He said, if you record strings in there, it sounds like the Beatles. But when you're here, it feels like proper work. And in your bedroom doesn't feel like proper work. I don't think so. Let me take you back to that point you made about hardware. Because one of the interesting things about, well, Abbey Road, yes, but EMI, was uh, they tended to build their own kit. And, and you've already said that there were things, like, for instance, magnetic tape. Uh, they, they was first developed in, in Germany. It was the Germans. Uh, it was the Nazis, let's be frank. <laughs> <laughs> Bless them. They um, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, EMI then is bringing either bringing kit back or observing it, and then building their own, which building is very their own, distinctive about because they they were very much you know didn't believe in things that w weren't invented here you know which you might say is a bit of a vice of many companies actually uh, you know so the first uh, proper tape recorders were were brought back from Germany you know after the war uh, and uh, but it was a while before EMI had built what it considered its its superior, sturdier equivalent, you know, and all this stuff will be dealt with out at haze at the factory. But, you know, that's the interesting thing about the place, and it's still the case nowadays, that it's got, you know, it's a permanent studio that does all kinds of things. So it'll do classical, it'll do games, it'll do dance music, it'll do rock and roll, it'll do everything in between. Therefore, they have all the skills there. On, on on site all the time. And I think that was what benefited the likes of the Beatles and the Pink Floyd massively. They didn't have to bring anything in. 
It was all there. And, and there was always an understanding person who could, if you came up with a challenge, there was always some, some you know, nerdy guy who took it as a personal challenge to go off and solve your problem. Well, you tell the story that when, when the Beatles first went in for their audition, Paul McCartney's amplifier was making yeah. so much noise, we can't use this. And, and Ken Townsend comes down and with a soldering iron. It's a soldering iron, yeah. you see. The Beatles wouldn't have known what a soldering iron was, you know, even, even, even as simple as an item as, the, as that, you know. So there were always these guys who could solve practical problems, in a, often in a very Heath Robinson fashion. Well, people like Ken Townsend uh, are sort of heroes of this Absolutely. book. Absolutely. They perform miracles. You tell a wonderful story that the first time that ADT, automatic double tracking, was, was used was for the Beatles because he invented it for them. And then he took it to the management and they said... It hasn't been tested yet. He you can't was, use it. You can't use it yet. He said, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go back to the Beatles and tell them that they can't use it on their on their new record, which I understand is going to be called Revolver or something, you know. And so of course, it, automatic double tracking is a brilliant device because previously, singers were recording it twice yeah. to thicken out their voice. Yeah. And then ADT just sets it off enough that you, you only have to do it once. And it you only have to do it once. And it was invented for John Lennon. Who was lazy. Because uh, John Lennon was A, lazy, and B, hated his voice, loathed hearing his voice. So listening to his voice in his headphones while singing again was, was agony to, to John Lennon. So Ken Townsend came up with this thing. And when George Martin had to explain to John Lennon what it was all about, he, he used a reference to a, to a goon sketch. He said, it's like they flanged it, which is a kind of piece of Spike Milligan gobbledygook. Well, I was talking to a guy in the studio the other day who says, that's still the term that it we is. use. When I play a guitar, I use a flanger. Which yeah. is just absolutely... But it's just because John Lennon didn't understand the Didn't understand it. George Martin reached for the nearest parallel he could think of, which is the goons. And, you know, of course, another thing, when you talk, when you talk about what's important with Abbey Road, I do think the heritage of the comedy records made in the 50s and 60s, was massively important. Let's talk about that a little bit, because George Martin, the Beatles producer, was already having a lot of success with Peter Ustinov, Flanders and Swan, Peter Sellers, Bernard Cribbins, all of these, uh, all of these wonderful comedy records. But he was doing something different with comedy records than anybody else had done. He was f far more imaginative than most people because he went through the stage of recording people in front of an audience like Flanders and Swan. That's mm. how he did those things. But if you listen to records like Songs for Swinging Sellers, and if you've never listened to Songs for Swinging Sellers, you really are missing something because it's a masterpiece. And that's just completely invented in the studio. There's no studio audience, but every track... He takes you to a different place purely by virtue of, you know, judicious use of sound effects and odd bits of music. You know, you're in a park or you're in a boy's public school or wherever. So it's this, this wonderful imaginative universe that he created for Peter Sellers. And I think that was hugely important on things like Sgt. Pepper because that does the same thing. Let's be in a circus. Let's be in the Albert Hall. Let's, you know, let's hear a, a fake crowd. Let's hear a fairground, all that kind of thing. Um, and they were big admirers of him for his ability to do that. And in Studio 2 at Abbey Road, um, which is, has a staircase 
connecting the floor of the studio with the control room up there. There's a big, there used to be a huge, great cupboard under the stairs. And in that cupboard, they kept every bit of noise-making machinery that a small repertory company could possibly want, you know, a wind machine. or And a bath so you could do Yellow Submarine. <laughs> Absolutely. Everything was in there. And, you know, if you're ever stuck for an idea, go and have a look under in the cupboard. Uh, and that was good for the goons and it was good for the Beatles and Pink Floyds as well, you know. So they used the stuff that was there and they also used the people who were there. Pink Floyd particularly, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, you know, is invented in the studio effectively. But it's full of sound effects. I hesitate to call them sound effects because if you wanted to make a sound in those days, you had to go and make it. You, to, you know, if Alan Parsons, the engineer, wanted the sound of clocks on time, he had to go to a local clock shop, get the guy to wind up everything, you know, with a, he had a Ewer or whatever portable rec tape recorder it would have taken, and then get it all to go off all at the same time, you know, so he could record it. The sound of uh, somebody running for the plane in that song, On the Run, is the sound of the tape operator running round Studio 2 in his plimsolls while somebody in the middle records it. The sound of the, the voice uh, saying you're late for your plane or calling your flight is a lady called Hazel Yarwood who, was, who used to run the cutting room. The sound of the Irish voice at the end who says, there is no dark side of the moon. Matter of fact, it's all dark, is an Irish security guard who works at Abbey Road. So... <laughs> You know, they were they, they used what was there. Because this is before the time you could do it in the box. This is before the, you the, had to the, do the days it. when you, you could do it all digitally in your bedroom. This had to happen. It had real, to happen. In real time. It Maybe had, much more, more involved. Yeah, and, and, you know, and, and, and Abbey Road used to go out and just record sound effects just in case they were ever to need them. The, the organisation that Abbey Road is most, most resembles, and it actually started round about the same time as the BBC in lots and lots of ways. That the BBC, like Abbey Road, has a rule book and can be really frustrating to work for. But also, it has a tradition of bending those rules and finding people who bend those rules and, and, and having loads of people who quite like being naughty. And, uh, and that was the culture of Abbey Road and was also the culture of the BBC. Well, tangentially to that, and this is this is a, a slightly strange question, but we know that Sergeant Pepper took uh, like four months to record. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon took nine months to record, which must have been incredibly expensive. Did EMI not have any worries about the uh, about the cost of sticking a, well, a band in the studio for nine months? No, well, very often Pink Floyd would, uh, you know, they wouldn't be in there for all of the nine months. Because don't forget, all these times these bands were playing live. I suppose that's true. They were, they weren't. Nobody was going away to Desert Island to make records in those days. You know, they would be piling their stuff in the back of the van and going up to play Lanchester Poly that night, mm. and then maybe coming back the following day. So they wouldn't be working absolutely all the time. But yeah, but Pink Floyd, all they wanted was to be in the studio, and so in the early on in their career, they they negotiated a lower royalty rate just in order to get pretty much unlimited studio time. And EMI were quite happy running the place like that until the late 70s when it just gets ridiculous. 
Because by the late 70s, you've got studios all over town. You know, there are loads and loads of places you can make a record. Prior to that, there hadn't been. There had been about three or four where you, where you could do it. And so the price they could charge was, you know, coming under pressure. And uh, at the end of the 70s, they found less and less demand for the big Studio One because the classical catalogue had been recorded once in stereo, once in mono. And people thought, well, that's it, isn't it? Why would anybody ever want, you know, Beethoven's Fifth again? Because there's very little demand. And that's in the days when there's so little use of Studio One that Pink Floyd used to go in there in the middle of the night and play five-a-side football. It's an ideal size, actually, to play a game of five-a-side football. Put up the, uh, the, you, the booms, the booms, the, the booms and you hang something from them, I don't know what, to make goals. To make and goals. Then, <laughs> and then, you know, Procol Harum can face off against Pink Floyd in, the, in, in Studio One. Even engineers were said to take their cars in there in the middle of the night and jack them up. <laughs> And change the oil or whatever, because yeah, there was so little use for the place. But riding to the rescue was the film business, um, which at that point in the early 80s starts producing the huge, great blockbuster franchises, which in many cases are still with us today. Star Wars, you know, Indiana Jones, subsequently Harry Potter, all these things. And so many of these things, intriguingly, uh, rely on a very conventional classical orchestra playing in quite a conventional idiom, recorded in a very conventional way. Which is slightly confusing, considering that film has become this incredibly technical, do-it-on-a-screen thing. Uh, and yet, uh, they're taking Hans Zimmer into a, a, a huge studio with a hundred-piece orchestra. The, it's, I think it's fascinating because I think with all these films, and you can say the same thing about James Bond, you know, all these franchises that last for, for a long, long time, the grounding point is the music. It really is. What's the thing that reassures you at the beginning of Quantum of Solace or whatever it is that you are watching a film in the same tradition as Dr. No is the theme. And it's the way the theme is used. It's the sound. And the same thing applies with Star Wars, you know, the fanfare, all, all this kind of thing. Same thing applies with Raiders, Harry Potter. That's the stuff that makes you feel, I'm at home. I'm in this, in this, the same world that I entered into many, many years earlier. And, and with uh, Quantum of Solace, you've been sold a pup? Well, okay, by the time you've, you've paid, you've found out that, you've paid your money, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But you'd be, you, you would not be happy if you found that the music was, uh, was departed from the tradition because that's your kind of, that's your brand, oddly enough. James Bond has changed and will change in the future. What's the brand of James Bond as a film? It's the music. That's my theory and I'm sticking to it. So everybody and his uncle wants to record in Abbey Road. Is it safe? Is it going to be the mecca of, uh, of uh, music, f f you know, indefinitely? Is everybody still going to... Well, in the words there? of James Bond, never say never again. But, you know, um, uh, I think it would be very hard to see it closing because when its current owners, Universal Music, took it on, pretty much the first thing that the boss had to say to the, you know, the powers that be was... We will not harm a head, a hair on the head, of uh, 
of Abbey Road. It is an icon of British, place. British creativity. and all. That, That's the way everybody talks about these things nowadays. It's listed. The zebra crossing is listed. Is it, the zebra crossing still there? Oh, absolutely. The zebra crossing is the only listed zebra crossing in the UK. Zebra crossing is the key to the thing because the zebra crossing gives people something to do when they've gone there, you know. And, of course, you know, don't forget, the Beatles were originally going to call their album Everest. They were going to go and have their pictures taken at the top of Everest. Oh, no, they weren't, but you know, <laughs> no, they that's, weren't. <laughs> that's what they said on Tuesday. And then the following day, somebody said, no, I'll tell you what, we'll just go outside. They go across that crossing three times. Ian McMillan took, took six pictures, only one of which is usable because their legs are kind of, their strides are kind of matched. They are turning away from the studio, as, as they, nobody thought this at the time, as though leaving work for the last time because that was the last time the four of them were in there. Three of them were in there subsequently, but the last time four of them were in. And so I always think it's absolutely fascinating that when you look at it in that light, it was a deliberate attempt to demystify themselves and look what's happened, you know. It's gone completely. It's completely drink. iconic. Absolutely. And of course, by association and for other reasons, Abbey Road is iconic. The studios is it's the it's the Ur studio, isn't it? It's the first one you think of. It's a, it was the first one, and it is now, in many senses, the last one. I mean, you know, loads and loads of others in London, legendary studios have been turned into apartments or car parks or whatever, and nobody seems terribly bothered. They'd certainly be bothered if it was to happen with Abbey Road. David, I really enjoyed the book. Thank you very much for joining us on Books Podcast. Pleasure. The book is Abbey Road by David Hepworth, published by Bantam at £25. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hay. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.